0: You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 152. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceactingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Welcome to the second part of my interview with the Emmy Award-winning voice actress Miley Flanagan. Miley is probably most famous for voicing the character of Naruto in the long-running anime franchise of the same name. She also won an Emmy for her performance in the animated show Jakers' The Adventures of Pigly Winks. Miley is an accomplished on-camera actress and comedian as well. She is one of the few actresses who works almost equally in voice acting and on-camera, and I was excited to bring her on the podcast to share her experience with my listeners. In the first part of our interview... Miley and I talked about how she broke into acting. Although she joined an improv comedy group when she was in college, her primary focus in school was training to become a spy for the CIA. After she graduated and was waiting for the CIA to give her an assignment, she connected with some of her fellow improv classmates and decided to take a chance, form a group, and travel to Cape Cod to perform comedy for tourists over the summer. That decision changed the path of her life. After that summer, she realized that she wanted to pursue a career in acting instead of one in espionage. In this episode, we discuss what inspired Miley to become an actress in the first place. While she did not receive any formal acting training while she was in school, her upbringing played a big role in helping her learn how to observe people and communicate with them effectively. Her father was a spy for the CIA, and their family moved around a lot. This meant that Miley had a very international upbringing and had to learn how to relate to many different types of people. Her family was also very funny. They often used humor to interact with each other, and the ability to joke around with her family members was an important skill that Miley developed at a young age. These experiences helped her hone her observational skills, which served her incredibly well when she was studying other actors' performances. But I'll let her tell you all about that. And now, the feature segment. Um, What I'd love to talk about now is sort of what inspired you to become an actor in the first place.
1: Well, I think because it was so creative. And...
0: Because you were deep in poli-sci. yeah, deep, and your father was a spy,
1: yeah, he worked for Department of Defense. now tell me
0: just a little bit about that because I think we may have a strange connection there as well.
1: Oh, I like it, yeah, um, he was military intelligence, okay, for his whole career, he started in uniform, you know, back in the day, got out of college, was in uniform, and then they said, "You're a terrible soldier, but you're really great at military intelligence, so become a civilian. Okay. So he was a civilian, and he was chief of station in a lot of different places or secret places. So, for instance, we'd live in Bangkok, but I didn't know he... He was just gone a lot, and obviously he was gone in Vietnam. But I was uh, a kid, so I didn't realize that.
0: So so was he... But but as a spy, was he, like, trying to get information? Was um, he just in an office organizing no, people? Um,
1: well, a little of both. He was uh, a counterintelligence chief. Okay. So he would... Be in charge of people recruiting people to do, be double agents uh, at the end of his career is a very high level. At gosh, the beginning yeah. of the career, he was one of the guys that tried to get people that were spying. And one of his first jobs when he was young was um, he um, he they said, we think that this guy he was in Germany, in mm. Stuttgart it was when he was single and everything. And they said, we think this guy is a um, SS guy but we can't prove it and he's applied for asylum in the United States he wants to go to the US with his family and Mm -hmm. all this stuff and they said we know he's SS but you have to prove it so my father spent all this time like sucking up to the guy and drinking beer with him and going and his wife was like oh why don't you stay for dinner and they'd have beer and you know so after I don't know months of working this guy or whatever he finally like he at one point raised his hand up to do something and my father said I gotcha because he had every SS guy had a number in their armpit oh So, yeah, another time he told me a story about how he and a buddy, um, there was an apartment complex and they thought that the American guy, who was a colonel or something, was giving secrets over to the, to East Berlin or to the mm. Germans, East Germany. And, um, so this guy had kind of a sweetheart and they didn't really know what was going on with them. So my father and his colleague, They came up with an idea that they had to move the woman who was like, she was like a major in the army. And they're like, you know what? Sorry, this is going to be immediate. But she was the neighbor of his looking out on his apartment. They said, you were reassigning you to Greece for six months, which was just, you know, it was a made up assignment. Sure. So she was like, okay, She had nothing to do. Like, Mm -hmm. but it was like, oh, yeah, it's really easy. But we have we need you there. And my father and the guy moved into her apartment Uh under the cover of darkness. And they watched the guy. Like in shifts for months, <sighs> for months. And they'd sneak in and people would sneak in and bring him up food. And um, they basically didn't leave for a long time. And then they got him.
0: Stakeout. Yeah.
1: But he didn't tell me very many stories.
0: Sure. But you said, I, I believe you said once that he was in charge of uh, intelligence in Western Europe. Yeah. Yep. From what years was he in charge? Um. Do you know? It would be... Roughly?
1: Roughly. um, All of my high school years... So, like, uh, I graduated from high school in, uh, oh, my God, 83. So, it'd be, like, 79 to, like, 83.
0: So, it turns out, at that same time, my family was smuggling artwork out of Czechoslovakia (laughs) during the Soviet occupation. No way. Yeah, yeah. So, my father had made friends with a lot of abstract painters and sculptors in the late 60s um, during the Dubček years in the Prague Spring, when there was this sort of loosening of the restrictions. And because there was, the Soviets got really antsy and the tanks rolled in in 1968 to shut that all down. Right. And so our, one of our artist friends was actually here in the States with us and my dad had to wake him up and say, we're very sorry, Marazek, like, but you're, the tanks are rolling into your country. Oh,
1: my God. He
0: had to go back because his, his mother was ill and he was never able to leave again. Right. And so all of our friends were abstract painters and sculptors and they were not supported by the socialist regime because the yeah. they all only wanted socialist realism in the art. So we would help them by bringing them acrylic paint so they could keep working and we would buy their artwork for hard currency and bring it back to the States to sell it for them. So we became their distribution No man. way. Completely. Little
1: side business. Illegal,
0: crazy. Yeah. like, And it wasn't even a business. We weren't making any money. Right. It's just my dad, and it was funny is my dad took all this artwork and he sold it to a lot of his friends and then later in life he went around and he bought it all back <laughs> because he liked it so much. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but of so, course. yeah. So it's funny. At, at the time that we were doing this, yeah. we might have been... On the radar of your dad. I'm
1: sure my dad would. He did a lot of stuff with the Czech people and Prague, and he would disappear and come back. We'd all try and guess where he was. And then we'd be like, oh, (laughs) all right, you're in Sweden, you know? But really, he's spying on the Russians. yeah. Yeah. Or like he would always, he would, you know, for like family day, he would take us to the Czech border and we'd watch the attack dogs. Go after, like, people running, like, volunteers that were padded up running for the border.
0: Oh, my God. And then also
1: just stare over the border at the Czech guys, you know.
0: Because, like, hey, hey, yeah. hey. Cause, cause
1: that's family day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you are, like, you know, deep into this. And I know that you're really into politics yeah. and you are a poli-sci major. Yeah. Down the rabbit hole on this stuff, training to be a spy. Yeah. And then Actor.
1: Well, what happened was they were waiting for me to get an assignment, and it was going to be about a year. That's when I decided to live in D.C. And uh, another side story is I had to have braces put on because I had some really messed up thing in my mouth, Mm -hmm. some messed up teeth that weren't really treated because we were moving around a lot. So an actor with braces, not great, but but I could be a spy with braces. But I looked 12. I mean, if I was, they would have laughed me out of places. But anyway, so I was going to go to language school in Monterey because they tested me for language aptitude when I was applying to be the spy. And I was approved, and I was just waiting for an assignment. So at the end of the summer, we were like, I was like, this is fun, and I want to give this a whirl. And my but, parents were just horrified, horrified. But,
0: but that was after college. You yeah. had done the improv group. You had initiated the improv group when you were a sophomore.
1: No, I'm sorry. I'll clarify. I initiated the spinoff of the improv group. The improv group was around for about two or three classes before me. Oh, okay. With other people. And most of them didn't go on to be professional actors at all. It was just an extracurricular thing. Now it's a huge thing. And in fact, the class, kind of the class after me, but one guy overlapped, like Amy Polar was in it.
0: Ah. And now
1: it's kind of a big deal at Boston College. Gotcha. But at the time, it, people loved it and it was funny, but it wasn't like it is now. There.
0: So you joined that improv group. That I joined it, and then
1: those guys all graduated.
0: So, what... so then me
1: and another guy kept it
0: going. Kept it going. Yeah. So, what inspired you to join this improv group?
1: My I just girls on the hall that were like, "You're really funny. You should." Not... They saw flyers that said, "You know, if you're funny, come join us." And I stopped. I was a, at a lower dorm, and you know, Boston Hills. And I walked up, and I started to have nerves, and. I like this is crazy, and I stopped in their dorm room, and uh I said, "You know, uh, I'm thinking about this They're like you gotta do it, you gotta do it. I think they had told me about it too, and so I just went and auditioned, and then I got it.
0: How did you know you were funny?
1: My whole family's funny.
0: <laughs> my yeah. dad was really funny, okay, my
1: mom was more dry, funny, everyone's funny in my family
0: is, it, you, is you, it the kind of thing like you all have to out funny each other on the holidays and things
1: uh, it's not like joke telling, but there's a lot of laughing, yeah, yeah, yeah it's 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 a lot of my whole family is into politics and, you know, kind of wry observation and not so wry observation. And, you know, it's like, or not, you know, like. Um, so is it like. Everyone's kind satire? of a, like a voracious news reader and reader and stuff.
0: Gotcha. So th- does it come from a satirical place or, you know, Often, making, yeah. making fun of political ridiculousness or whatever? Yeah,
1: that's a lot of it. And, um,. And self-effacing kind of stuff sometimes. Um, because
0: you understand that for most people, and I would argue many times for my students, the idea of saying, oh, I'm funny, I'm going to try out for an improv yeah. group, is like yeah. jumping off a cliff without a parachute. Like, Yeah. W- so, I mean...
1: But, you know, I was always different than all the other kids anyway, because I had never really lived in the U.S. as a thinking person. Like, I was real little when I went to Bangkok. Uh We'd come back, but that was like la-la land. All we wanted were movies, malls, and McDonald's. Sure. You know, because that was America, right?
0: Right. Um, MTV?
1: Too early for that. Too early, okay. But, and TV, yes, TV, but like black and white TV. (laughs) Like, I I remember, speaking of the moon landing this week, which we weren't, but I'm going to... I remember my dad saying to me, my grandparents, I think he was saying, you need to watch this. This is an important moment. And it was Richard Nixon getting on the plane, mm. resigning.
0: Wow. And he he
1: gather around kids, you know. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it was kind of a wild life. But I do think it kind of helped me with getting accents and different cultures and stuff like that.
0: Well, sure. It's, yeah. it, it gave you a, a rich background to pull from of life experience. Yeah. Um, to understand where different people are coming from. And you probably met a lot of different characters, oh, so to God, speak. Oh, my God, yeah. Right? And, and,
1: like, you know, from, you know, the guy at the commissary who... I was a grocery bagger with my brother, and there was this guy, the Nazis... This was in, in, in Germany. The Nazis had captured him and cut out his tongue. And so he... Uh, and we would always, you know, of course, we were high schoolers. We felt sorry for him, but... It was kind of like he'd yell at you to do something, and we were like, we, we have no idea what you're saying. But he was a nice guy, and he was well-loved and all that. Yeah. But you, we, we'd meet people like that, you know, or when we were in Thailand, it was the 70s, and we had maids, you know, because labor was cheap. Yeah. And when you're an expat, that's what happened then, you know. Sure. I don't know if it still does, but um, – or, you you know, your best friend for a year is someone from New Zealand. Uh-huh. And then they move because their dad's the ambassador. Right. And then your next best friend is from, you know, like, Fort Hood, Texas,
0: so, do you think that that constant sort of shifting of worlds and frames and people, that that helped give you some confidence when approaching this? Because I'm still hung up. Maybe it's because I'm terrified of improv myself. <laughs> yeah. It's only later in life that I became more comfortable yeah, with it. Yeah. That That, the, I mean, I've... I,
1: I, <sighs> I've seen you improvise scenes. You're oh, good. sure. Yeah. You know,
0: now I've, I've, yeah. I've learned it. But, you know, I, know, I also I, learned how to swim, but, <laughs> and so I didn't drown. You know, like, <laughs> it's not necessarily something that came yeah. naturally to me.
1: Um. I don't know. I don't think my family suffers from lack of confidence. <laughs> Let's put it that way. We all have pretty healthy egos. Okay. All you have to do is kind of talk to my brother about the rest. He's like, good God, they're awful. I'm like, you couldn't do better. Like, you know what I mean? You know. Okay. It's like, or he'll say something about it, like that, that idiot. He's the stupidest mayor in the world. You know. Yeah. Everyone has an opinion.
0: A boisterous family, shall we say. Yeah. yeah. Would you classify yourself as an extrovert?
1: Who? No one's ever asked me that. In a way, but surprisingly, sometimes when I get places, I just like, shoop, shut down, and yeah. and observe. Uh-huh. Um, I have a lot of friends that are stand up comics uh-huh. here in L.A., and they travel and they're big names. Some of them, big names, and um, so I'm with them a lot. And everybody's topping each other. You know, that's wow. Everybody, we're out drinking, and they're always topping each other. And yeah. so I go to a lot of their shows, and and um. You know, after a few beers, then I'll chime right in. But every once in a while, you know, I'm sitting around and I'm with like, I don't know, just really famous people. And I'm like, and then after a couple of times of hanging out, they're like, oh, you're really funny. I'm like, yeah, that's why the fam- famous people pick me to hang around with.
0: Them. Like, you know. Excuse me. Excuse Hello. me. I'm, I'm not just
1: a wallflower. That's
0: why they write parts for me. Yeah. So it's it's
1: kind of fun. Like, extrovert. Mm, I guess so I'm not shy, now.
0: Yeah. Well, and for me, the the notion of an extrovert and introvert is where do your batteries recharge? Yeah. Right. So like I'm an introvert, which means that I I can go and I can be gregarious and presentational, but it drains my batteries. Yeah. And then I have to go be by myself to recharge. There are other people, when you put them by themselves, their batteries deplete. Being around people charges them up.
1: Yes. Okay. I'm like you more than. Okay. I mean, I'm also a total loudmouth, but like at conventions and stuff, uh-huh. when I go back to the room, I just, it's done.
0: <laughs> Is there anyone who okay. doesn't go back to the room after a convention? There and... are a
1: lot of people. Don't really? you mean, Usually they're single guys. Oh, okay. And they're like, hey, where are you guys going later? Like, let's hang out. Let's." Uh... And they'll stay out till three in the morning, you know. And you're like, how do you have the energy for that? You just talk to thousands of people. See, I
0: don't know those guys because I never go to the bar, so I would never run run into them. <laughs>
1: No, you wouldn't. (laughs) And then they'll go to another bar, or they'll go to, the like, every convention, I don't know if your friends or fans or students know this, but, you know, at conventions, they often have, like, green rooms in the hotel, right? loaded with snacks and liquor and music, and it's kind of for people that are working the convention, and guests at the convention, Mm -hmm. to go relax and sit down and not be around all the guests.
0: All all the fans, you mean? All the fans. Yeah, yeah, so it's a a place where all the guests, and often the staff, can sort of relax away from the crowds.
1: Exactly. And, um... And kind of let loose a little. But, like, some of these guys I, I've i met, like, then they'll go to the after party, you know, yeah. after that. And you'll see them and they're like, oh, man, I got in at five, you know. And you're like, that's, how, could, how can you, I mean, I am older, too. Like, I could do that when I was 30, but I wouldn't.
0: I couldn't do that when I was 20. 20. Um but that that's I'm a I'm a different ball of wax. Yeah. So you, you you then you go off to Cape Cod and yeah. you, you do all this stuff. At any point in here, did you take any acting classes?
1: Um once in Minneapolis, a friend of mine encouraged me to take a guy I know, he's a very famous clown teacher. Ooh. And um yeah. Chris Bays. From NYU's professor there.
0: Okay, yeah, that name sounds very familiar. Big name, yeah, yeah.
1: And he was a company member, and his specialty is clowning. I mean, he was trained by, you know, what's the French place where you go to get trained? Yes, whatever it is, it's the place.
0: Well, Lecoq does the the mask work, I think. The the European clowning as well. Yes. Okay. One of those, Uh
1: and probably there too. And so he led a workshop, and I took that. And then, um, and then when I moved to Los Angeles. I took those classes in voiceover, and Mm -hmm. what used to happen is you used to be able to take some workshops with casting directors on camera, Mm. and they were like, you know, on Tuesday night, three to seven, yeah. and I would take that, like, I'd do a few of those to get exposure to that casting person, because I had a bad agent, and I couldn't get in, and I didn't have a reel that had, you know, enough of my work on it for them to call me in, sure, or a resume, you know, you have three credits. So So how did you learn to act? Well, just watching. Yeah? Yeah, I think so.
0: Just watching, like, people in the improv troupe?
1: No. Mostly just people, people.
0: Just people, people. Yeah. But then how would you translate that on stage?
1: Well, I will say I'll correct myself. So I did a play with Laurie Metcalf and French Stewart. And we did it on and off for seven years. And we started it here. We did it off-Broadway. And we also did it at Steppenwolf for their cabaret space.
0: In Chicago. In Chicago. Right.
1: A couple years ago. So we've done the play a total of, like, seven times. Mm. And I didn't have a big part in it, and what I'd have to do is dress, help Lori quick change, which means you help dress them very quickly backstage. Right. Because I didn't enter until, like, the play was only about 70 minutes, and I didn't enter until about minute 55 or something. Okay. So my job was kind of to do that, and I would kind of, like, also have to be like, hand her her purse, And she had a a mug of liquid and a checkbook. Make sure the checkbook was in the purse. So, Mm. Because there were only three of us. And then Mm. it was a very small outfit. And we did everything. It was really fun. And um, it was like the old days. And um, I learned more watching her. I would lay on the ground. She had this enormous monologue. And I stretched my back out. And I'd lay down and and watch her from the wings do this amazing, hysterical monologue. Mm -hmm. And I did learn more than any acting class would have ever taught me by watching her
0: what did you learn
1: <clears throat> just she has a very unusual delivery and that you can get away with it sort of like christopher walken does uh-huh. but hers is a little more creative and i'll give you an example so at one point she's like and you think she's not noticing because she's very shy she's an introvert uh-huh. right but get her on stage it's falls to the walls right but she said oh well what happened to the necklace i said well i told you it makes me feel like it, it's choking me when i'm on stage she goes that's good you should be wearing it. <laughs> like, I'm like, I didn't know she noticed my necklace. I only wore it for one scene, then I would take it off. But I'd always felt like I was choking. She's like, oh, you, you need that. I'm just like, this is a different way of looking at things. Whereas I'm like, claustrophobia, get it off for the scene.
0: She's right. like,
1: oh, keep it on the whole show.
0: So having that impediment... Yeah. That thing to push against yeah. as an as an actor yeah. um puts you in an uncomfortable position yeah. which she thought would be more compelling to yeah. an audience. Yeah. Because you're not yeah. comfy.
1: And I, I did I did a thing where it was written that I come out from the bathroom, so one night we had a very low energy audience. And the people are very, very old. And I'm not criticizing old people because we had a million shows with really old people that were amazing. This one, not so much. So we're just like, you know busting our chops to get them to laugh and doing our job. And so, um, I come out just to screw with Lori and French and I'm coming out of the bath, but, and I come out usually in bare feet and at these ridiculous kind of light, uh, dreepy pants and a a t-shirt. And instead I came out in just my bra and my pants. And they were like, ah, and then Laurie and French, they're like, and the, you know, the, the our producer's were like, you gotta keep it, you gotta keep it, you gotta keep it, you gotta keep it. So nice. I did, and the audience would just, it stopped, howl. they would howl, they would howl. <laughs> and there were several moments in that show, not, not uh, mine, a lot of were Laurie and French's. And then, so eventually we kept doing it, kept doing it, and then I was like, all right, it's the last night, I'll just come out of my bra and underwear. And so I did, and then they're like, you got to keep it. But also, I, I don't have a great body, but I'm only on stage for, like, a couple, like, in that outfit. And it just, the crowd went nuts because they're like, that was so funny. And they don't expect you to do that because yeah, yeah. I'm not built like a supermodel or even a size two, you know. Yeah. So when I would come out and I have to take a broom and, like, go after her, uh-huh. that the crowd went crazy. And then it yeah. was a blackout. And then we rolled on to the end. Yeah. So, yeah, she taught me a lot. But, yeah, I do not know that. I know people that have been to Yale and they're not good.
0: To Yale graduate acting school? Yeah.
1: Yeah, all right. Like, I'm not always sure acting school works for people. Sometimes it does. Right. But I I taught a voiceover class a couple summers ago, and one or two people had degrees from, you know, master's.
0: Master's degree, yeah.
1: From really good schools. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say Yale, but like Yale or, you know, um, whatever.
0: It was me. You yeah, can
1: it tell was me. It's <laughs> a <laughs> <laughs> Carnegie Mellon, let's say. Okay, sure. And they they were cocky, but they weren't good. Yeah. You know? And oh, they I had understand. all the confidence. But when I got them in the booth, it was just like, you know, you got to drop your attitude and just listen to what I'm saying. I'm trying to help you.
0: So what I love about you and your process is how unassuming and how... Um, I'm not sure if I want to call it uh, a practical necessarily, mm-hmm. but it, it's experiential. You, you, you didn't go to a lot of acting classes, mm-hmm. but obviously there's a lot going on in your head mm-hmm. and, and... It, there's a term that I, I'm fond of called the, the curse of expertise, which is when you're Ooh. really good at something, uh-huh. it can be hard to explain to somebody else how the hell you do it, ah. right? Like when a master chef has to like actually take what they do and put it into a recipe, yeah. they're like, I don't know. I just use a pinch of this and kind a of bit sprinkle of that, that, and it just works. And eh, cook till done. Yeah. And, and to the person who, who has no experience with that, cook till done is like a completely useless direction right. because how do you know when it's done, Yeah, right? And so... and, and but I thought I think we we had something there with this notion of pushing against something that was uncomfortable because it sounds like a lot of what your background is from is from comedy. Yeah. And and comedy is the hardest form of acting mm-hmm. because you can't hide. You know, in tragedy, often people can someone brood can, and, can brood and be tragic, and and the audience might be bored, but they won't admit that it does it's not good. Yeah. With comedy, if you don't get the laugh, you suck. Oh yeah. Like there, there's no. No getting around it. The litmus test is foolproof. They laugh or they don't. Yeah. And and so when you're studying people and watching them be funny or anything else, can you articulate what you're absorbing from them or what you're gleaning from them? Um, Or is this stuff you all just figure out when you're on the boards up in front of an audience?
1: You just figure out. It just pops out. And I think a lot of that is having traveled a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Absorbing what, you know, the weird, you know, schoolmaster... Well, didn't you have like to... a German expat woman who was like terrifying, you know, in Bangkok when you know stuff like that? Just... Well,
0: and, and, because you're being dropped into all these different environments, yeah. you're having to survive, right? Oh, yeah. So you're having to learn very quickly yeah. the pecking order of the students. Oh, yeah. How to interact but with I the was teacher. Funny. But you were f- right, and yeah. comedy is a way to survive right. in those environments without getting eaten,
1: oh yeah, and I was eaten when I moved to Nuremberg afterwards. emotionally, yeah, yeah <laughs> you uh, didn't my lose brother digits, and I but... that we were at the school that we weren't going to eventually go to, so we were placed in temp my parents and us, and we were placed in temporary housing, so we went to this elementary school that wasn't going to be our elementary school, ah. and the way it broke down was it was like the other elementary school kind of serviced this outlying base, and then sort of the officers um Housing area, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like houses as opposed to tall apartments crammed full of people. Gotcha. So the one where we were were, was crammed full of people. And it was, you know, it it wasn't the officers. And my dad, we weren't going to live there. And we moved in March from Bangkok and we'd never seen snow and didn't have the right clothes. So my mother went and bought us like two windbreakers at the PX because that's all they had left. Oh, no. And we were just mesmerized because it was. Bangkok, we lived this ideal life. You know, as I said, we had like a servants and a driver and a yard and it was beautiful. And it was very exotic. And we'd go to everywhere, you know, and then we yeah. moved to Nuremberg to a housing area. And it was on the fifth floor. Our dog had had puppies. We had three dogs and one of them had puppies. So we had seven puppies. We'd have to shuttle up and down these five stairs. Um We'd never you know made a peanut butter sandwich for ourselves or anything like that right because we had you know people do it yeah and then it was like bam welcome to reality yeah and so they and my brother and i were smarts we were placed in like good classes and we were short and little and looked completely like we were six years old right so they were like you're not you know you're not in fifth grade no way and it was tough it was a tough school it was a tough school Like there was a lot of fights and stuff like that. So we, you know, we protected ourselves and eventually we had to just kind of win people over. And then we got out of that school and got to a different school and it was better.
0: I have this sneaking suspicion that your ability to handle yourself in different social situations is part of what has allowed you to grok things when it comes to comedy on stage. Yeah. Is that, am I, am I no, too you're, much I'm sure. you're, right. Psychologist? It's, yeah,
1: no, you're right. Okay. Because one day I'm hanging out with, you know, my friend that's, you know, driving an Uber from a bad family, you know, doesn't have a hope in the world, you know, sleeping on couches. And then the next day I'm literally at, like, Goldie Hawn's house, you know, right. and with Kurt Russell and having this extravagant meal. And, you know, like just Hollywood mansions and, yeah. you know, or I'm flying. Cause we do, you and I are so lucky. Like, you know, we, we're like, yeah, I've been to Sydney. Like there aren't that many Americans. it could be like, Oh, I've been there. I've been to New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. I've been to Wales.
0: Yeah. Sure. Why not?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's so normal for us now, but it's not. Yeah.
0: yeah. Miley's ability to understand emotional situations, handle social challenges and still find ways to be funny, is nothing short of amazing to me. It takes a special kind of resilience and quick thinking to be able to adapt to so many different circumstances and retain your sense of humor. Whatever she may have lacked in formal training, she more than made up for in life experience, diligent observation, and on-stage experimentation. While I always stress the importance of developing and honing one's artistic skills through training and practice— you also need to make sure that you actually have some life experience to pull from when portraying characters. Miley's upbringing exposed her to all sorts of different people, cultures, and social environments that helped enrich her understanding of interpersonal relationships. This gave her a wealth of direct experience which she could then apply to her performances. An actor can have all the training in the world, but if they don't have this well of emotional wisdom to pull from, their characters will tend to feel shallow and lacking in nuance. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that you have to have an international upbringing like Miley's in order to become a successful actor. What improved Miley's acting abilities was not how many countries she had stamped on her passport, but rather the fact that being thrown into so many different situations meant that she had to focus on understanding people, relationships, and cultures If she wanted to survive socially, you can choose to incorporate that same commitment to studying human interaction into your own life, regardless of your upbringing, location, or situation. Pay close attention to how people relate, even if their conversations seem typical and every day. Often, in the most casual greeting between people, there is nuance in their speech patterns, eye contact, and body language. The words they're speaking may be common and habitual but the emotional intention underneath their language can be filled with deeper meaning. It's like being an emotional detective. Look for the subtextual intent behind their words and see if you can figure out how they really feel. Who knows? Perhaps Miley's spy training had more influence on the development of her acting abilities than we thought. Next time, in the third and final part of our interview, Miley shares with us her advice for the aspiring voice actor. Miley teaches voice acting classes herself and has noticed her students making the same kinds of mistakes recently. In her opinion, the most common mistake among her students is that they don't do their homework. When she assigns them a character, they often neglect to do the research necessary to truly understand that character's motivation and presentation. We then discuss in great detail the best way to go about doing acting homework and how to make sure you're exploring a character more deeply as you practice, rather than simply repeating lines over and over again, which can result in a dull and lifeless performance. It's a detailed look at the acting process, and I'm excited to share it with you in the next episode. Until then, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening.